0: Well, good evening. good evening. It's great to welcome you here tonight. Thanks for coming out on a Monday night. I know that uh, if you're a creature of habit, you're not used to being at church on a Monday night. So thanks for being a creature of a of a new habit, at least this one time for this one week. And we thoroughly enjoyed yesterday. It was a phenomenal day. Uh, I told Pastor Paul and Pastor Caleb both this, that last night's musical, musical, musical whatever it was, um, was, was just amazing. I've never seen anything like that. And I wish that churches across America uh, could enjoy something like that, that puts such a focus on a story of a missionary and then combines that with music like that. So it was just a a phenomenal evening for us. I never had the opportunity to to meet the right, meet Harold Reiner. I've met a number of his children and grandchildren and and the family, and they all kind of tend to be a lot alike in terms of, uh, drive and personality and, and uh, kind of an indomitable spirit type type of person. So BMM is blessed with a wonderful heritage of missionaries like that, and we're thankful when churches like yours tell the story of what God did uh, so many years ago, but a story that God wants to repeat. Um, that's not just even for those of you that are younger in, in the room, you may think, well, that's, that's something I could never do. I'm just little old me. Um, and I'm sure Harold Reiner at one time thought the same thing. I'm sure at one time he thought, you know, how could God ever use me? And look at what God did in using him in great ways. And that's true of of all of us, I trust, that uh, we just want God to use us in whatever way he sees fit. Uh, Take your Bible tonight and let's go to a familiar portion of Scripture. We're going to go to Luke chapter 15 this evening. And uh, before I read the text, I I just want to ask you this question. When was the last time you lost something valuable? I found that in life there there tends to be people who are very detail-oriented and organized who never lose anything. And there tend to be people who aren't as detail-oriented and aren't as organized and tend to lose things. The fun part is when God puts those two people together in marriage, right? right? Maybe some of you know what I'm talking about. So the Lord blessed me with a wife who's very organized, very detail-oriented, and doesn't lose anything. So what am I saying about myself? <laughs> right? Not as organized, not as detail-oriented, and I have a tendency to lose things. And so one of the sources of consternation from my dear wife over the years of 32 years of marriage has been when her husband loses something important. One of the sources of consternation for me is when I have to admit it. (laughs) When I have to say, sweetheart, um, do you know where my XYZ is, whatever it might be? And she's like, well, didn't you put it? And I'm like, no, (laughs) I wouldn't be asking if I put it. And and, and part of what she's done for me, though, this is a good thing, is she has helped me learn to, okay, this is where you always put this, and if you always put it there, you don't lose it and if you thanks <laughs> there there we go Notice it was a female <laughs> amen she says <laughs> and so it, it like like i walk in through the through the garage of our house and into this little this little breezeway area laundry room thing and right there's this big thing that's got a rack for keys <laughs> guess what that means yeah, some of us are a little slow picking that up, but it <laughs> that means that's where my keys belong. Or you know, there are other things, other places in the house where if you just put it there, you never have to. And I'm I'm repeating her sermons, okay? If you just put it there, <laughs> you never lose it. <laughs> and so you can imagine over the years the different things that I've that I've lost. Probably the biggest frustration for me is the times I've lost my keys. Again, not so much at the house now that she has me trained. And there's a tendency for most of the time, am I right, most of the time my keys to go where they belong when I'm at the house, but that doesn't mean I don't lose them some other place, right? I remember one time very specifically um, losing my keys. I had taken the girls, we were, I mean, this was a long time ago, so our, our older two girls, we only had two at the time, we were probably four and two or five and three, and it was my day off, it was a beautiful sunny day, we were living in Iowa, and I said, you know what, I just want to take the girls to the beach, we'll just go and I'll put a little floaties on them and all that kind of stuff and just have some daddy-daughter time and just go spend some time at the beach. And so she was happy because that meant that was a day she didn't have to worry about children you know, at that age and she could just take it easy. And I said, well, I'm just going to do that for the afternoon. So we went out and I actually had like this inner tube, had the girls in my lap, enjoying the inner tube. Well, I didn't think about it. This is before the days of electric key fobs. And so I just put my keys in my swim trunks. Um, in the pocket of the swim trunks, and we enjoyed our time out there, daddy and the girls, and all that, and it came time to leave, and I went like this. And I realized I'd lost my keys. Now, part of my frustration with this whole losing things is having to call her <laughs> <laughs> and admit it, and I didn't even have a cell phone at the time that really tells you how long ago this was. And so I didn't want to have to call her and tell her that, and so I was determined I am going to find. My keys. Part of my training in high school was I trained to be a lifeguard. And one of the things you learn in lifeguarding is how, how to find, <laughs> this sounds terrible, how to find a drowned person, <laughs> how to find a dead body, all right, at a place like a beach. And so literally what they teach you to do is they literally teach you to go back and forth like this across the area you think the person may have drowned in, and then take a step forward and go back and forth again. And so I picked this, I picked an area, I I figured we were in an inner tube in an area about the size of this part of, of the seating area here, okay? And so literally I'm like, I can find my keys. I've got size 13 feet. They cover a lot of ground. And so here I am going like this. And I, I thought, well, you know, my feet are big, but it's even better if I had my little girls out there too. Surely they'll step on the keys. And so here I am with one little girl, with a, my, my, my hand in hers, her hand in mine, on one side and the other one on the other side. And I just say, okay, girls, just go like Daddy. Just go like Daddy now. And they're like, well, okay, just like Daddy. And we're looking for Daddy's keys. If you step on them, let me know. So here we are, back and forth, back and forth like this, kind of like the old typewriter. You know, back and forth, back and forth. And people started looking at us funny what's up with that guy? What's he doing to those poor little girls? You know, they they didn't know that I'd lost my keys. And they started wondering what in the world's going on. And and you can imagine I did that for, I don't know how long, too long, long enough for people to think I was a freak. And finally I just said, forget it. Okay, we're not going to find the keys. And so I finally broke down and went and called my wife and admitted to her again. I I lost the keys. She wasn't surprised. And uh, she came with the other set and, and, you know, took care of everything. And so I say all that to say that you realize that when something is, especially the more valuable something is, the more likely you are to search for it. And tonight, I want us to go to a text of Scripture that describes people that don't know Jesus as lost people. As lost people. And this context of Luke chapter 15, the, the context is that Jesus tells three different parables. And they're all about the lost, The first parable has to do with lost sheep in the first portion of the text, verses one through seven. The second portion, verses eight through ten, has everything to do with the, with the, with the lost coin. And then the rest of the chapter is about a lost son. We're probably the most familiar with the last one. We refer to that as the prodigal son, right? Well tonight I want us to focus primarily on the, on the second one, but I, I think it's important for us to understand the context, because the context is what really helps us understand the whole point of the, of the, of the text, okay? So let's look at beginning in verse 1 of Luke chapter 15, when it says this, Luke 15, verse 1, then all the tax collectors and the what? Sinners. And the sinners. This is where, you know, you kind of go, oh, this is going to get interesting, Right? Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to Him to hear Him. They wanted to hear what Jesus had to say. And the Pharisees and the scribes complained. They murmured. They grumbled. Saying, this man receives sinners and (gasps) eats with them. So He spoke this parable to them say. That's important context, because the reason Jesus is going to tell all three of these parables is because of the response of the Pharisees and the religious leaders who thought it was scandalous that Jesus was spending time with tax collectors, that Jesus was spending time with sinners, that the down-and-outers, the deplorables, the people that religious leaders would never find themselves in the presence of, let alone eating with them. In Eastern culture, eating would have been a demonstration of even acceptance of that individual. And so the religious leaders of the day thought it was horrible. The Pharisees didn't understand how Jesus could hang out with what they considered riffraff. They would have described such people as deplorables. And so Jesus told three parables to contradict their wrong beliefs. You see, Jesus Spent time with the deplorables of His day because of His love for them and His desire to reach them. After all, why were they coming? What does the text say? They were coming to hear Him. Isn't that exactly what they needed? They needed to hear that He was the Messiah the Son of God, who would die for their sins and provide for their eternal life. If anybody needed to hear Jesus, it was them, right? And yet the religious leaders of the day thought it was horrible. It was de- They were deplorable. How dare Jesus spend time with them? And so it was because of Jesus' love for the lost and his desire to reach them that he spent time with them and even dared to eat with them. So that's the backdrop then of this passage of Scripture. And so I want to read now to you verses 8 through 10, because that'll be the primary focus of, of, our, of our study of this passage of Scripture. Verse 8 says then, Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I lost. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of... Of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And that's un- important for us to understand because that's what is being referred to here when the Bible refers to the lost. Whether it's the lost sheep, or the lost coin, or the lost son, it's a sinner who repents. And so you find that, you actually find that phrase repeated at the end of verse 7. You see it there in relationship to the lost sheep, when it says that there's joy in in heaven over one sinner who repents, Uh, than over the 99 just, just persons who need no repentance. And so that theme is repeated over and over again, because a lost person, the lost, are unsafe people, as described here in the text, who need to repent and believe in Jesus Christ as their Savior. So with all that in mind then tonight, I, I think the Lord wants us to do this. The Lord wants us to love the lost. He wants us to love the lost. Now I would guess if I were to ask for a raise of hands in, in the room here tonight and say, okay, is there anybody in here that doesn't love the lost? <laughs> Probably none of us would raise our hands and say, oh, I don't, I don't love the lost. No, nope, I don't love the lost. I would guess that all of us would say, of course, right? All of us love the lost. And yet, tonight I'd like us to study this, this passage of Scripture and think in terms of, of, of the reality of what it looks like in our life if we really love the lost. What does that involve, to truly love lost souls? And so that, that involves two things. Number one, it involves searching for lost souls. If you really love lost people, if you really love the lost, that means you are going to be searching for them in, in, in terms of going after reaching them for Christ. So notice how Jesus illustrates that in verse 8 when it says again, Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and, notice the next phrase, search carefully until she finds it. And part of what I, I think we need to understand here is the, is the cultural context of the day in which this was written, because there might be a tendency, there is a tendency for us when we look at scripture, to look at it through the lens of 21st century Christianity, or even just 21st century culture. Because what is it that this woman loses? Talk to me, what does she lose? Okay, specifically, she loses money, but specifically she loses a coin, right? A coin. So think about that in your context, in my context, if I lose a penny, is it a big deal? Some of you penny pinchers are like, yes, it is, right? <laughs> yeah, If you lose a penny, it's not a big deal. If you lose a nickel, yeah, a dime, you might look for that. Quarter, probably, you'll look for that. And so our tendency is to think, well, she lost a coin, what's the big deal, right? That she's searching after this coin, it's only a coin. Well, the significance of this culturally, and for us to understand the text, is this. This is a Greek drachma. And a Greek drachma was, was the equivalent of a day's wage for a Roman soldier. A day's wage for a Roman soldier. Now, if you just kind of quickly did some math in your mind, I'm going to use rough numbers, all right? Rough numbers, it would be equivalent, equivalent approximately to $100. Does that change your view of what is being described here in this text? But all of a sudden, you realize that she has lost $100. Now, I asked some of you, if you lost a penny, would it be a big deal? Would you go looking for it? You said, no. Nickel, maybe dime, eh possibly quarter. Yeah, I guess. Maybe I would. Now, if you lost a $100 bill, right, what would you do? Look for it. You'd go looking for it. That's right. You'd What's that? Call your wife. You'd call your wife. Yeah, great. <laughs> Thanks, dear. <laughs> Because after all, she does a better job of finding stuff than I do in the first place. So thank you for that. <laughs> How true. You go looking for it. And that's the point of the text. Because notice what this what this woman does. It says that she she loses this coin. Does she does not does she not light a lamp? Does she not sweep the house? Does she not search carefully until she finds us? Actually, there are some commentators that think not only, you know, was this approximately the value of hundred dollars, but it might have even been a Greek drachma that was a part of her wedding. Uh, headdress, where they would put coins in the headdress of a bride. So not only would it be worth a lot in terms of dollar amount, but could be, if that was the case, could be worth a lot sentimentally. And so it's no wonder that she she does what she does, and she she lights the lamp. It says she sweeps the house. Notice that Jesus uses an example of 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 a woman looking for this coin. Right. I think there's some signific- significance there, even in terms of. Men, how do you sweep the house if you sweep the house? Versus, how does a woman sweep the house? When my wife sweeps the house, literally, there have been times where I've swept, and she's like, "Um, um, "Can you can you like (laughs) do a little better over there? You not see that over there?" And she's usually gracious about it. I'm like, "Yeah, you're right, dear. I didn't do a very good job sweeping. Let me let me try that a little bit more diligently here. Okay, I'm gonna have to do underneath the table too. Yes, you have to go underneath the table too. And so there I am, sweeping underneath the table." Not this lady, right? She sweeps the house. She lights a lamp. She sweeps the house. And she searches, as it says there, carefully until she finds it. There are a couple words that I I like to associate with this search. She searches diligently and desperately. Diligently and desperately. She is out to find this coin. It's that important. And you understand the principle that's taught here is the more valuable something is, the harder you will search for it. The more valuable something is, the harder you will search for it. Think about that in relationship to a human being. How valuable is a soul? I mean, even, even just in, in terms of if, if something happens to someone. Um, I love hunting. Hunting is one of my Favorite hobbies. I guess at this age of life, it used to be sports, but but uh, there aren't many sports I can't I can play anymore without hurting myself. <laughs> Although I've found out pickleball is out there. I guess you Floridians kind of like that 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 pickleball, so maybe I'll maybe I'll get into that. So I do still hunt. I do still hunt, and one of my big dreams for hunting was to be able to hunt elk in Colorado. So I've had the opportunity of going out to Colorado three times to hunt elk, and I. I still remember the first time, very specifically, very vividly, because of what happened. I was hunting elk in Colorado, in the mountains, collegiate peaks area, which is above Buena Vista, and uh, 14,000 feet mountains all around us, um, and I lost the chairman of my deacons. (laughs) Literally, he got lost. So we had this whole big plan, you know, it was opening day for us, we had this big plan, Ruth's brother at the time was in the Air Force, he was stationed uh, at uh, the Academy in in Colorado Springs, and so he had planned the whole hunt for us, he had everything all all prepared for us, and we're going to do this, we're going to do that, we had a cabin, we got up like at three in the morning, and and drove the four-wheel drive trucks as far as you could go, just kind of scratching your way up these Jeep trails up the mountain way before dawn, And then he had this trail We got out on with all of our packs and our guns and everything, and we walked for probably another hour-plus up the mountain on this trail, and then we got to the place where there was no longer a trail, and and Daniel's like, okay, this is our rendezvous spot. Okay, some of us are going to go this way, some of us are going to go that way, but we're going to all come back here at 10 o'clock in the morning. Everybody got that? You kind of have an idea. It's still dark, but you can kind of see, you know, a little bit of the landscape and shadows and stuff, and, you know, just don't go too far but be back here at 10 o'clock. And so we all headed off in our different directions, and we all came back at 10 o'clock minus the deacon. <laughs> minus the chairman of my deacons. Did I mention he was the chairman? <laughs> and so we're, we had, we had two-way two radios, no cell service, okay? Uh, we had two-way radios, and so we thought, well, you know, we'll, we'll see, you know, Bobby out there? And start talking on the radio, and no response. No response, no response. And so we said, you know what, let's do this. Let's kind of go... Spread out, kind of the direction you saw Bob go this morning, and let's head that way, let's come back. And I, I don't remember now, maybe like in an hour or something like that. So we did, and we came back, no Bob. Finally, we're like, we're going to have to start yelling for him. And so it's probably by now it's after noon. And so we did it again. We headed out in different directions on the radio, yelling out loud, which, by the way, we didn't get any elk. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> okay? And so we're yelling, Bob, where are you, Bob, Bob? And and. Came back to the same spot, no bomb. no bomb. So finally, by now it's middle of the afternoon and we're like, what are we gonna do? And Daniel, Ruth's brother says, you know what, we gotta go, we gotta go to town and call out search and rescue. You know, it, we don't want it, we, we wanna be found before dark. We don't want him to end up spending the night on the mountain. And so we end up going into town and, and calling out search and rescue. Search and rescue was already dispatched. They were already out trying to find another stupid hunter. <laughs> Actually, the other hunter hadn't gotten lost. The other hunter had shot an elk and decided to stay with it overnight Because uh, he couldn't get it packed out in time because of, of nightfall and everything like that and rather than letting the the, the the animals get to it type of thing. He decided to stay with his elk his dead carcass of his elk And so they eventually found him. I know that sounds gross. That was a bad way of putting it <laughs> They eventually found the other guy and then finally were headed out to find Bob and you wouldn't believe where they found Bob They found Bob traipsing down the side of the highway in his blaze orange. <laughs> he had hit his gun, decided that wouldn't look good on the side of the highway carrying a gun. Nobody's going to pick you up and give you a ride when you're carrying a high-powered rifle. Uh, but he was traipsing down the side of the highway because he realized he'd gotten lost. He'd gone over a couple of mountains and then thought he could come right back. I mean, not full-fledged huge mountains, but sizable ridges, and thought he could come back to that spot. And he tried to come back, and literally he stood at a spot and said, where in the world are those guys? It's 10 o'clock. We were supposed to meet here. And he was like, two washes over. (laughs) And and thought that we had lost our way, and not he had lost his way. And so he sat there and sat there, and he tried the radio too, and couldn't get a hold of us. And finally he realized, okay, maybe I'm the one who's lost. And so what he did was he said, you know what, all water runs downhill. And we started out this morning in a cabin by the river. And I know that if I head east and down, eventually I'm going to run into the river and the highway. And so he spent the rest of his day crossing private property, <laughs> illegally, crossing fences with his gun and his blaze orange and everything because he knew eventually. And so they, when they finally found him, there he was on the side of the road trying to hike back to the cabin. C- can you imagine that? Can you imagine his pastor <laughs> if we had never found Bob? I think it's bad to call your wife about your keys. <laughs> imagine calling his wife, which, which by the way, he didn't call his wife. So here we are playing Rook that night, which is what all good Baptist hunters do. Uh, We're playing Rook that night, and one of us said something about mentioning to our wives that we had called our wife and told about Bob, and he's like, What? You told your wife that I got lost? I haven't called my wife. If your wife tells my wife, I am dead. And so he literally throws his cards on the table, and he's gone. (laughs) Because we we didn't have cell signal at the cabin. He had to go to another place to get cell signal to be able to actually call his wife. And so he drove to get cell signal to tell his wife, because he was afraid that my wife or one of the other wives. What's the point? The point is this. I kept looking for Bob because of his value. I called search and rescue out for Bob because of his value. Because a human being is worth that. And that's what Jesus is teaching here in relationship to a soul. That when someone needs Jesus, they're worth searching for, they're worth pursuing, they're worth going after. You see, a genuine love for lost people will be demonstrated by searching for those who need the Lord and seeking to bring them to Christ. If necessary, doing anything and everything you can to try to introduce them to Christ. My concern is this, that for a lot of Christians, most Christians are not living their lives like that. Most churches aren't, and I mentioned this yesterday, aren't living their church life like that, that the lost are that important, that souls are that important. A friend of mine leads a, a ministry that's a, an association, a state association of Baptist independent Baptist churches And so as a result of that, he travels a lot across that state and speaks in a lot of those churches and that association. And one of the things that he did when he first started his ministry was this. He he started to, to notice how many of those churches were really shrinking and shriveling up. And so he began asking the question, and the question was simply this. When is the last time your church saw an adult, saved, and baptized and become a member of your church? That's the question he would ask of the pastor and or leaders of the church. When is the last time your, your church saw an adult saved and then baptized and become a member of the church? Here were the two most common answers he received. Num- the number one answer was we can't remember. We can't remember the last time we saw an adult saved and baptized and joined the church. The second most common answer was basically the same it's been a long, long time. It's been a long, long time. You see, reaching souls for Christ is what we're all about, is what we should be all about. Is what Jesus was teaching about. The importance of, of, of seeking after and, and reaching lost people. And, and I'm afraid that sometimes there's a disconnect when it comes to missions. In that there's a tendency sometimes for us to think that, and we'll send somebody else to go reach people for Christ, or we'll give a lot of money, or we'll pray for them. And then we don't have to witness ourselves. And then we don't have to share the gospel ourselves. Not that long ago I heard about a church that had closed. And, and, and this was in the this discussion was held in the, at the Global Ministry Center there at Baptist Admissions. And and somebody said said in relationship to that church, oh, what a shame that a church, that church died that it closed. It was such a missions minded church. And at first I thought, oh, that's too bad. Yeah, you're right. And then I thought, and I didn't say it out loud and didn't say it to the person that said it, okay? But then I thought, but were they? But were they truly a missions-minded church? Because a missions-minded church has to start with being missions-minded right here. A missions-minded church has to start with reaching the people around you. It can't just be about sending or sending money or praying for somebody else to do the job for you. It has to be about you reaching your community for Christ. And so for Faith Baptist to be all that God wants it to be means you as the people, not just the pastors, you as the people of Faith Baptist Church reaching people for Christ, sharing the gospel, making disciples, reaching people is our mission it's our mission somebody put it this way the church exists for mission without the mission a church is not a church it's just a group of disobedient christians hanging out think about that if all we ever do is get together for fellowship and all we get to do do is worship and all we do is you know hear good preaching and those are all important i'm not minimizing any of those those are all part of being a part of a church but if that's all we ever do and we never get down to reaching souls for christ we're just a bunch of disobedient christians hanging out hanging out so god wants us to do everything we can to reach people for christ does that describe you every christian Every Christian should be able to share a clear, concise, and compelling presentation of the gospel at an adult level. Clear, concise, and compelling presentation of the gospel at an adult level. I say that because I think all of us learned a really super basic, I know I did, a super basic Romans road. And that's not bad, okay? It's good to have the Romans road down. Romans 3.23, Romans 6.23, Romans 5.8, Romans 10.9. That's super, okay? But... Can you have an ongoing conversation that expands on those Scriptures and or other Scriptures with an adult? I think part of how I was trained when it came to evangelism was to to have a one-and-done conversation. In other words, where you you kind of fire at the lost person with both barrels, and you let them have the whole gospel right then and there, and if they don't get saved, yeah, you'll still come back to them. It's not that you're not going to come back to them, but you're just like disappointed that, that they didn't get saved right then and there. But what I have found, at least in the last 20 years, is that rarely, rarely does somebody get saved the first time I share the gospel. And usually, it's more likely that I have got what I call gospel conversations. Which means I may only share one portion of the gospel in one conversation. And another part of the gospel in, an, in another conversation. In another. And so there's this ongoing conversation we're, we're, and, it, and it's a dialogue rather than a monologue. I think, I think, again, that's part of maybe how I was trained back in the day was that it was kind of a, a monologue because you memorize this outline and you give the outline and, and, and hopefully they get saved by the end of the outline. And no, to have a conversation. How many people are you right now having a gospel conversation with? People that you just have an ongoing... And so I, know, I realize for some of us, the, the question is, how do I start that, Right? How do I get, get going on it? Let me give you some, some ideas, and some of these you're familiar with, but some ideas of how to start the conversation, okay? How to start the conversation. My favorite, two are the old diagnostic questions from Evangelism Explosion. And they are simply this. Have you come to the place in your spiritual life where if you were to die today, and it, in other words, something happened to you, do you know for certain that you'd go to heaven? That, that's a great starter. Now, there are some people that that's, that's a bit personal, I mean, you just ask them really, really a really personal question. But that's a good starter. So do you know for sure you're going to heaven is a simple way of putting that. The second one that I, I like to follow that up, and again, this is all from Evangelism Explosion. The second one is, and if you stood before God and he said, why should I let you into heaven, what would you say? Okay, so the first one is about whether or not they're certain. And by the way, what, what's the most common answer for the first question? Yeah, it's. I hope so. Uh, Occasionally, I have people tell me, "I know so," and still get the second question wrong. (laughs) Um, Most of the time, it's I hope so, and occasionally people will will, will say, "I have no idea." Okay, I have no idea. So that's the point of the first one: is assurance. You know, do they they know? Is it a hope so thing or maybe so thing? And then the second one is, what's the what's the point of the second question? What's that? Okay, so what you're looking for is what, what is the basis of what they think gets them to heaven? Exactly. You said it's Jesus. That's right. What is the most common answer to if you stood before God and He said, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? What's the most common answer? I'm living a good life. <laughs> wow. <laughs> a big chorus of it. Yeah. It's a works answer. Okay, so it's a works answer. And it may be I've lived a good life. I haven't done anything really bad. You know, I, I, I'm, a, I, I'm, I'm a good person or whatever it might look like. I had one lady tell me one time, I played the organ in my church. <laughs> no offense to the organist. I don't even know where you are, okay? <laughs> that's wonderful, but I'm sorry. <laughs> it doesn't get you to heaven. <laughs> but this lady was literally depending on her, play, her playing the organ in her church. That's what was going get to get her to heaven. So that's a good way to start. Um, here are some other ways to just kind of open the conversation with people. Um, This is one I find myself going to more and more often because it, it, it really draws people out and they really start to talk. And I say, do you have any spiritual beliefs? Do you have any spiritual beliefs? I don't know if you're following this trend in America or not, but one of the trends in America today is to be spiritual. All right, And that's the term that is used. And people will say things like, I consider myself to be a very spiritual person. Now, that's not what we think of it, okay? That's not biblical Christianity, spirituality, being like Christ and mature and all that. What that means is they believe something spiritual is going on out there. And it can be any variation of that. And usually it's just that. It's usually this hodgepodge of all kinds of things. Like one of the things that's really common right now is people using the term karma. I mean, people will say, well, that's karma. In other words, somebody does something, and and something bad happens to them as a result of them doing something, and and they don't even realize that where that's drawn from, from Eastern religion, and where that comes from theologically. People that maybe maybe have no other you know grounding in terms of of spiritual terms, and they'll say that's karma. So people, when you ask them, do you have any spiritual beliefs? They they may just poof. <laughs> and so sometimes I use that first, and then go to the other two that I talked about. Do you have any spiritual beliefs? Or you can simply say, another, another question to get the, get the thing started is, so have you ever thought about heaven? What do you think it takes to get there? And again, it's similar to the, if you stood before God and he said, why should I let you into heaven, what would you say? So those are all just different examples. I like the one that, that Jeff Musgrave has been here with the exchange. We, we had him twice at my last church. I like the question he asks. I'm trying to remember it specifically. Something about um how does how does he I'll just put it the way I put it, okay? And that is, how would you describe your relationship with God? How would you describe your relationship with God? You know how many people out there say, Well, we've got an understanding. It's crazy. I'm not kidding. We've got an understanding. I leave him alone, he leaves me alone. Or we got an understanding, I don't do this, and he doesn't do that, and it's like no sense of what God is truly like. Not at all. Not at all. That's another question to ask. So, what do you believe about God? What's the most common answer? God is love. That's right. That's right. Exclusively. There's no mention of his holiness. There's no mention of his, of his justice. It's just that God is love. And so those are ways for us to be searching for lost people to start the conversation. The other thing, just some other practical stuff in terms of searching for lost people, is getting to know your neighbors. Getting to know your neighbors. We live in a society where increasingly people know the people in the house the next next to them on this side, the people in the house maybe on this side, maybe at least they know their names, and maybe maybe one or two across the street. Maybe, right? Maybe. Ruth and I live on an acreage and so we're out in in between two towns and so that makes it even harder and during COVID I mean literally people were just hiding in their houses and so one of the things that we were doing we we used to do a Christmas open house for years we did a Christmas open house we would invite all of our neighbors up and down this up and down this road you know certain distance one way certain distance the other way we'd go door to door invite them over um, and and try to get to know them well because of COVID we stopped doing that, didn't do that for a couple years, and so this summer we decided we're going, to, we're going to switch it up. So this summer we did a, um, a, a, basically a picnic, invited all of our neighbors up and down the road so far each direction. I, I think all together we invited 30-ish, right around 30 people. Why did we do that? Because our neighbors need Jesus. Now not every one of them, we have neighbors that are believers, we're thankful, they were excited to because this gives them an opportunity to, to bridge into people's lives as well. But so many of them, and, and you know what? Three-fourths of them didn't know each other, even though they were neighbors, because there was like one house between them. (laughs) And so they knew the neighbors in the house next to them, but they didn't know the neighbors in the next house. We also found out some of the neighbors don't get along with each other. That's another story. (laughs) Okay. But the whole point, the whole point of this was having this, and not all of them came. You know, some of them—the one that didn't get along with the other one—didn't come, okay? But the other one came, and the point of that was for us to get to know our neighbors, to have opportunities to to share the gospel, risk getting to be pretty good texting buddies with one of those ladies. You know, where they watch our house when we're when we're gone. She always texts texts her. We do that with the believer neighbors too, to to the west, um, also. But this is an unbeliever by the name of Renee that 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 we're praying for Brian and Renee. When we first moved into the neighborhood. Brian was about as distant and standoffish as you could possibly be. He knew I was the Baptist preacher, and he didn't want anything to do with it. You know, he worked with some of, some of the guys, actually some of my deacons, as an air traffic controller, and he didn't want anything to do with Christianity. You know, and he was pretty outspoken about that. And, and yet Brian, Brian is softening. He, they came to the picnic, which in and of itself was a pretty big deal, that they came to the picnic, and they stood around, and they, they, they just had a great time. And all we were doing was just just being neighbors. You know, we played some cornhole. Actually, did we ever get around to cornhole? We had cornhole out um, and had food. And, so what's the, well, the point of that is just we're searching. We're searching for lost people. And let me just encourage you with that's what we're supposed to be doing because they're worth it. The lost are worth searching for. And so if you really, truly love lost people, you'll be searching for them. I would encourage you also to carry tracks with you, Encourage you to share your testimony if, if you haven't done that with someone, those are other great tools, tracks, testimonies, and so on and so forth, ways for searching for lost people. The search for souls has to be both a local and a and a global proposition. After all, how much is a soul worth? How much is a soul worth in Palm Bay? How much is a soul worth in Mongolia or somewhere else around the world? And God may want you to reach a soul here, but God may want you to to reach a soul somewhere else as well through missions. A soul is worth searching for. Searching for lost souls is one of the ways that we demonstrate we really truly love lost people. The second one is that searching for lost souls, you, you demonstrate your love for lost souls by reaching, or excuse me, by rejoicing, by rejoicing about lost souls. Notice what it says again in verses 9 and 10. And when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I lost. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, remember, what's the context? Who's Jesus dealing with? He's dealing with the Pharisees. If there was ever a bunch of sad sack, grouchy, grumpy, (laughs) nasty, joyless people, it was those religious leaders. And so Jesus kind of turns the tables on them and says, This is what ought to make you joyful finding a lost soul. And he specifically says that there's joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. I, I don't know about you, but, but I like to use my sanctified imagination a little bit with that. Have you ever thought about that? So somebody on earth gets saved. What happens in heaven? We don't have all the specifics, okay? So this is truly sanctified imagination, all right? So I'm not saying this is how it goes, but but how do you think it might go? I I, I doubt it's hallelujah. Okay, I love the song. Okay, amazing song. I doubt it that, but there has to be some sort of some sort of thrill, some sort of excitement. I don't know if the angels are going back and forth in heaven and high fiving with their wings. I don't know if that's it. Alright, but there's there's joy, there's excitement, there's enthusiasm over one sinner that repents. I doubt it is something like I've heard from a number of Baptists over the years. Well, I hope they meant it. Oh, good for them. That's great. I don't think that's what it's like in heaven, okay? There's joy in the presence of angels. And there ought to be joy in our hearts. When you hear that somebody gets saved, that ought to thrill your heart that they've trusted Christ as their personal Savior. All heaven celebrates is what seems to be indicating, being indicated by the text. The fact that all heaven rejoices at the salvation of one soul tells us just how precious lost people are to the Lord. Heaven celebrates. We think, think about that even just in terms of a person is born again. They're regenerated is what the Bible teaches. I mean, think about that even in, in our, our own families, our own family context. Those of you that are parents, can you remember when your kids were born? God blessed us with four kids. And I remember the birth of each one of our four children. They were, it, was all, it was an amazing experience. But I'll be honest the one I remember the most and the best is the birth of our first because I was scared spitless <laughs> I and mean, I was a little bit terrified I mean we're gonna bring a baby into this world and how is this all gonna work I mean I went to the Lamaze classes so I knew, I knew all about the you know all that kind of stuff so that was good for me it wasn't good for my wife especially when I had garlic the night before and was breathing, you know, hoo, hoo, hoo he, he, ha, 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 right in her face. That didn't work out so well. But but I remember the birth of Ellen also because of some of the, the, the different dynamics. Let's just put it that way. Ruth had been experiencing Braxton Hicks for a number of weeks, you know, false labor. And so over and over and over again, we'd go to bed, and she'd be in false labor, and I'd be like, so are you having a baby or not having a baby? She said, I don't know if I'm having a baby or not having a baby. And so that had been going on and on and on and on, and by this point you were two weeks overdue. Um, And so it was just kind of old routine of, yeah, right, maybe we'll have a baby tonight, I doubt it, was kind of my skepticism. And so we went to bed that night, and she didn't even tell me that she was having labor pains. And so we went to bed, and I don't know about you, but we did like everybody else did, it was the 90s, so we had a waterbed. Remember those good old waterbeds? Those bad old waterbeds, those of you that are under 30? ask somebody how horrible they really were so we had a water bed well ruth was in labor so all night long every time she has a labor contraction she would rock back and forth in the bed which seems just fine <laughs> until you make your husband seasick so literally i got up in the middle of the night sicker than a dog i'm like oh i don't know why i don't feel good and and come to find out later she had been doing that in the bed and the whole bed was rocking all night long and so I'm like crawling, almost crawling to the bathroom. I'm feeling so lousy. I'm like, I, I'm sorry. And she's like, I'm having a baby. I'm like, what? You're having? A, well, let me, I'll be back. <laughs> okay. And so that began, I don't know how many hours of labor and, and complications. And they're talking C-section and all kinds of other stuff they're trying and doing. And, and I'm terrified. You know, here I am, 22 years old, 22-year-old daddy, about to be a daddy. And I'm terrified by the whole thing. But all that, all that fear just melted away. The second they handed our little girl, Ella Marie, to us, popped her on the backside, and she you know, let out a big scream. <laughs> and uh, I had her in my arms. All those fears were gone. And I remember just bawling my eyes out with joy. I'm, ho- I'm holding our baby. And then to place her on, on my wife and, and for us together to snuggle around this little, Beautiful, little, tiny baby. Other than the day I was saved, the day we got married, that's been been the most joyful experience in my life. The birth of my four kids. The birth of our four kids. That's the way it ought to be when you lead a soul to Christ. When you see somebody saved... Or when you just hear about somebody else leading somebody else to Christ, it ought to thrill your heart. It may, maybe part of, part of the reason it doesn't thrill our hearts is that maybe we've never actually ourselves lead some, led somebody to Christ. You know, it, it's exciting when somebody else has a baby. That is awesome, okay? But it's still exponentially not as exciting when, when you have your own. And in the same sense... When you lead somebody to Christ, I I still remember the young man that I led to Christ as a teenager. The first person, his name was John. There I was, probably 15 years old. First soul I ever led to Jesus. And I was pumped! (laughs) What an awesome privilege it is. And your response to, to someone getting saved is an indicator of your spiritual temperature. If it doesn't thrill your soul, something is wrong. Something is wrong. The greatest joy in life is leading a soul to Christ. I think of a man that was part of our church when I was in rural Iowa. His name was Vernon. And Vernon was in his 80s. And Vernon had served as a deacon in in a different Baptist church and was a faithful member and just all kinds of good things about Vernon, but, but Vernon came to me, um, and I don't remember if it was in response to a message or what it was exactly, but he came to me and he, he confessed this. He said, you know what, Pastor O'Dell, I've never led a soul to Jesus. I've never led a soul to Christ. And my one prayer before I die is that I'll get to lead a soul to Jesus. At that time, we were involved in a a ministry that we referred to as Project Eternity. It was was a a door knocking type of ministry throughout our entire county. We're trying to cover every single small town in in rural Iowa in our county uh, to at least give a gospel track to every single soul and possibly be able to present the gospel to them. And so Vernon's in his 80s and he says, Can I get involved in Project Eternity? I said, Absolutely. There's no holding you back. Go through the training. You'll get to go out with someone that's experienced and a veteran, and hopefully after you've done, heard them share the gospel a few times, you'll get an opportunity to share the gospel too. And so Vernon started doing that. He started going out, and, and sure enough, there was a, a Tuesday night. I can't remember at that time if we were going out on a Tuesday night or Thursday night. We moved it back and forth. But he went out, and, and he came back to the, report, to the report time, and he said, guess what happened tonight, Pastor Odell? He said, I led my first soul to Jesus. And we were all thrilled. Thrilled for the person who trusted Christ, but also thrilled for Vernon. Thrilled to see him be able to say, I led my first person to Jesus. The interesting thing is this. You know what happened to Vernon not that many weeks after that? He had a stroke. He lost his ability to to talk. At first, almost completely, eventually, he got some of that back, and and in time it, it got a little bit better, but not with the same clarity that he had before then. And I can remember him bawling his eyes out and saying to me, I'm so glad I didn't wait. Stuttering to get those words out, mind you, after a stroke. I'm so glad I finally got to lead a soul to Jesus. But you know what his regret was? He hadn't been doing it all along. That he hadn't led multiple souls to Jesus Christ. And perhaps tonight there are some here that you've never led a soul to Christ. Don't don't be guilted into this, okay? Instead, be a Vernon and say, you know what? (laughs) That's going to change. By God's grace, I'm going to begin sharing the gospel and sharing my faith. And and I'm going to start praying and I'm going to start begging God to give me the opportunity, like Vernon, to give me the opportunity. Not when I'm in my 80s, but when I'm in my whatever you are right now to lead somebody to Jesus for the first time or to lead somebody else and then somebody else and then somebody else and then somebody else and then somebody else to Jesus Christ. God wants all of us to be like a Vernon in the sense of of, of just calling out to him and saying, Lord, help me lead somebody to you. James M- Montgomery Boyce put it this way in relationship to this whole spiritual thermometer concept. He said this, we are never so like God as when we rejoice in the salvation of sinners, but we are never so like Satan as when we despise those who are thus converted and think ourselves superior to them. The conversion of souls ought to be the joy and the thrill of our hearts, unlike the Pharisees and the spiritual leaders of the day. You think about it. Think about what happens when a person's saved. Think about that. They go from darkness to light. They go from eternal destination in hell to heaven. They go from being a child of the devil to a child of the king. They go from a slave of sin to a slave of righteousness. They go from living for themselves to living for the Lord. They go from an unforgiven sinner to a forgiven saint, from being lost to being found, from being pagan to being Christian. And if anything ought to thrill our souls, it ought to be that. And yet for a lot of Christians, a lot of Christians get more excited about the score of their latest team and how they did or their, their, their new digital device, or the raise at work, or something else. That thrills their heart more than the salvation of a soul. And so tonight, I just want to ask us the simple question. Do we really love the lost? Or maybe make it more personal. Do you really love the lost? If you really love the lost, that means you're searching, you're looking for opportunities. Even as you interact with people, you're thinking, This is a person I had to share the Lord with. I had to give him a tractor. I had to ask ask him a spiritual question, or I had to see if there's an opportunity for us to have a Bible study, or searching for lost people. But it's also a matter of if you really love lost people, you you rejoice over their salvation. That's what thrills your heart more than anything else. One of the practical things that I learned from uh, Jeff Musgrave, who, like I said, who, who was here with the Exchange Bible Studies is that all of us ought to have a find five list. And maybe it can be find ten, okay? But that's a good starting point. In other words, are there currently five people for whom you are praying? Five lost people for whom you are praying. If you don't already know who those people are in your mind right now, then maybe right now you could start to think through and write them down. Or maybe if you're here with a spouse, you could say get together and say, oh, who, who are our, our find five people? Part of looking and searching for lost souls is to have those kind of people and to be praying for and cultivating a relationship with and looking for opportunities to share the gospel with them. And if you're not thrilled about the salvation of souls, you ought to ask God to change that in your heart. And what you'll find is this. If you start praying for people to get saved, that'll become the desire of your heart. And that will then thrill your soul. Because what you really pray about is evidence of what's really going on in your heart do you love the lost? I hope you can say yes or that you can say tonight I'm starting. Tonight I'm going to start doing these two things. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for these dear brothers and sisters in Christ and, and the opportunity for us to study together tonight. I pray that as a result of what we've heard tonight that many souls would come to know Christ. That uh, co-workers, family members, family um, members, neighbors would come to know you. I think of some of my neighbors and pray for their salvation. I, I pray for my Uncle Jim, who I just shared a little bit with last week, and pray for his salvation. I pray for Jeff, another man I had a, a gospel conversation with here recently, and pray for his salvation. And ask, Lord, that all of us would have people like that in our hearts constantly, and that you'd open the doors, and then that you'd give us the boldness to open our mouths. In Jesus' name, Amen.
1: Thank you, Dr. O'Dell, and thank you for joining us this evening. God is about the business of multiplication even more than addition, and I believe if God would take this to heart, if each of us would, uh, we really could see some God do some powerful things in our midst. Wouldn't it be awesome uh, to see some souls saved right from this group That as you have been reaching out to the lost, and we would certainly be hopefully rejoicing with you uh, when that happens. Don't forget tomorrow morning, we do have the prayer breakfast, and you might want to bring a notepad with you and uh, take some notes on how you can be praying for missionaries, so that even in part to tonight, you can be rejoicing with them as you read back some of the reports of souls that they have saved on the mission field as well, or seen saved on the mission field as well, and uh, that'll be tomorrow morning at 930. It'll be in here in the auditorium. There is a sign-up sheet on the way out. If you'd so kind as to do that, that'll just help us with knowing how much food and things to prepare, and then Wednesday is is our international dinner, and I heard we already—I heard some rumblings of some food dishes people were having. So I'm sure we'll have quite the spread, and uh, that'll be followed by the service in here at seven. Thank you again for this evening. You are dismissed.